Thomas right here. Yo. And uh, John is, you're 34 now? Uh, nope. 33. You're 33. Don't do that okay. to me. All right. He's 33 years old. Not yet. And uh, John and Lindy have been married 13 years. Yeah. And uh, they have our beautiful little granddaughter, Olivia, who's four years old. Yeah. And uh, John uh, went to Fremont Christian School. Then he went to Bethany College in the Santa Cruz area and got his degree down at Vanguard um, in Southern California. And for close to five years, John and Lindy served on the staff at East Bay Faith Center, Heart of the Bay Christian Center, and did just a tremendous job with youth and, and the young people. Just a great blessing. It, it hurt our heart for them to go, but now looking at it, it's God. It was God. It is God. And uh, he's, a, he's a growing man of God. And so, John, um, when you left uh, the Bay Area, you and Lindy went to Southern California. What, what did you do when you first got there? Yeah, first, it was, it was, a, it was a tough thing because this is home and this always is home and this is family and this always is family. But when God asks you to do something, um, hopefully you do it, even when it's hard and when it's difficult. And we just felt compelled, like God said, Southern California. And we didn't quite know why. We had some friends and some relationships down there. There was a ministry down there that we kind of connected with in a church and we went down on faith without jobs. I don't advise that because it was tough. It was difficult. Um, but we did because we felt like God said to go and do that. And we've been on a crazy adventure for the last man. It's almost been nine years now down there of just seeing God, God's faithfulness and seeing how he works. So. so what was the name of the church that you, you hooked up with when you first went? And what did you do there? Yeah, so there was a ministry called Soul Survivor. And so it was a local church, but it was also a... Um, kind of an equipping events conference ministry in Southern California, which was planted from this group in London. Um, guys like Matt Redman and Tim Hughes were some of the, the worship leaders, uh, and they came and we partnered with them and did some work in Southern California for a while, and it was great. We, did, we were able to do a lot of great things, had a great congregation, and pastored it for about six years, and just saw a lot of great things, and God did some great stuff there. And then the pastor actually resigned, and then you became the pastor of that church for, yep. what, six years? Yeah, about six years. Yeah. Wow. And then something, something happened. There was another church in the area called Redemption. And uh, young, like John and Lindy, and they had a church. And uh, those church merged. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we came to a season where we felt like there was a new thing going to happen. And we didn't know quite what it was. We didn't feel like it was an end to what we were doing. But we felt like it was a different expression of what we were doing. So through some relationship with some other churches, we got paired up with some great people at a church called Redemption down in Laguna Beach, very similar to us in heart, vision, and values, and just got connected and met. And it felt pretty clear from first off, from the first time that we had coffee, that God was saying, what you guys have done separately, we want you to do together to accomplish greater good for our kingdom. And that was scary because it felt like, well, they have this thing, we have this thing, but God was actually saying, no, it's all mine anyways. And we wanted to bring you guys together to effect greater change in the area. So it was a tough decision. Um, but again, it was one of those moments where God spoke. And you're in those moments when God speaks, and we decided to go for it. And we saw some great fruit when we merged for about 14 months. A lot of, lot of growth, a lot of exciting things happening, a lot of things that we had prayed for for years for our city were starting to come to pass. And just saw some great fruit in that season when we were obedient and uh, married this other church. Yeah. yeah. And then a door opened up, and Lindy, John's wife, has worked 
for a mega church in uh, Southern California, I think 10 to 12,000 members, just a huge church. And she's done the accounting there for, for many, many years. And then uh, the Lord opened up a, a door for John to come on staff at Mariner's Church in Irvine. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and yep. how long you've been there and so forth. I was at a leader dinner. And one of the people on staff said, hey, you know, we have this position open for, for life groups. And I don't know why, but we've been thinking about you. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And didn't really think too much of it. And then Lindy and I went home. And again, it was one of those God moments where he said, yep, this is it. Job well done in the season that you're in. And here's a new thing. And again, incredibly difficult. I remember talking to my parents and my mom a couple of times going back and forth at the park as I'm watching Olivia. I don't know what to do. And when you don't know what to do, wise counsel is always a good thing, right? So we have that. We're fortunate. Um, but it, it seemed clear that, yeah, well done in the last season, but here's a new thing that we entered into. And it's been incredibly exciting. It's been humbling. We're learning. We're growing. We're doing things in a different way than we've done before. Just to be on a staff of, you know, 300 people on staff at a church of like 12,000, it's just crazy because we never thought that's where we would be. But just learning in that posture and even being able to influence different things that maybe weren't quite happening there has been, yeah, really humbling. It's been good. So you, you're over the part of the rooted area, which is the small group area. And then also John preaches on uh, a Sunday night, sometimes Sunday morning in their chapel. The chapel service is probably about the size of this right here on Sunday morning and Sunday night. So he's, he's preaching, he's growing, he's developing. And uh, something exciting is happening here really soon. Tell us a little bit about the uh, sister church in yeah. Kenya and uh, what, what's happening this summer and what you're going to be doing. Yeah, so one of our partner churches is in Kenya, Nairobi, in Africa. Um, yeah, come on now. And they do, a, they do a program there, which is a 10-week discipleship experiments pro, experiment program. It's called Mzizi, which in Swahili, I didn't know this, uh, means rooted. And so them being our partner, we looked at it, and they were, we were seeing some incredible results with what they were doing there. People coming to the faith for the first time, reigniting their faith. Uh, just amazing ministries being birthed out of this discipleship uh, training thing. And so we actually took it to, to Mariners to Southern California about three years ago. And we've seen uh, close to 1,200 people go through the program, meeting Christ, really a lot of them for the first time. And so that's kind of the role I get to play is, is dealing with rooted curriculum and then transitioning them into life groups. And so uh, having it been from one of our partner churches, we take annual trips, trips out to Kenya and we get to visit with them, meet with them, be inspired uh, just share what God is doing in our communities. And I actually get to go this summer, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah. It's great. I wasn't really anticipating or, or planning on that. I just got asked a, a, about a month ago. So there's a team of about 25 of our pastors. We're going to help with a conference that they do there and just to serve and see what God is doing. Uh, Nairobi is one of the biggest, if not the biggest city um, within Africa. Uh, it's a great urban city, but also right outside of the city, is one of the, it is the biggest slum in all of Africa as well. So we're getting a chance to go there and serve there and minister and just see how God is working there and just expand our eyes to how God's kingdom is moving globally because God's kingdom is global. And there's some incredible things that are going on there that we want to learn about and uh, just excited to be on that trip this summer. Well, that's John. That's our oldest son. We love him. We're proud of him. Let's uh, stretch forth a hand toward him and let's pray over him. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless John today as he brings forth the word. Thank you, Lord God, for the life of God that's on the inside of them. Continue to use him and protect him, Lord God, for your glory and for your honor. We magnify your name in Jesus' name. Well, how many of you are ready for the word? Let's go ahead and get into the word. Before we do, (laughs) 
unplanned. And just, we didn't do this in the first service, but I felt like God wanted to say something. And if I don't say it, I'm disobedient. And what I say coming next doesn't matter. Um, so I don't, it might just be for one, might just be for two, but God loves even this one or these two people so much that he wants to say this. I just kept getting this verse as we were worshiping. In Psalms, it says that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, that he's slow to anger, and that he's quick in love. And just got the sense as we were worshiping that there might be a few of us that are here, and we feel as though God is angry at us because of maybe decisions, maybe life circumstance. And maybe even you came reluctantly today, and you feel like, "I, I, I don't belong here. God's angry at me. I've made mistakes. And we just want to say, God loves you so much. That he's slow to anger. And that he's quick to love. That he's quick to love. That he sees you. That he knows you. That his heart is for you. And that he's with you. So I would love, maybe even after service, if if that's you, we'd love to pray with you. Not just to say that word and and throw it out, but we'd love to pray into that. That God is with you. Amen. 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 Hey, it is fantastic to be here. Like I said, it's always like it is coming home. This is family, and and this is the place that, you know, I grew up for my entire life, and it's great to always be back in here. Um, We're loving what we're doing. We're loving where we are. I'm loving being a dad of a little four-year-old, which is just an incredible experience. She is hilarious. She is... Uh, stubborn. She is, she is many things. Well, she's like uh, my mom a little bit, so you can see some of the characteristics. <laughs> she is fiery. <laughs> she is a lot of fun, absolutely. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest things about being a dad is seeing your kids, seeing our daughter growing up in the faith and beginning to like formulate questions about who God is and beginning to define who this God is. And just the other night, uh, Lindy was putting her to bed, and it's quite a uh, like a marathon experience to put her to bed sometimes. So she's reading her books and everything. And, and, and Olivia looked up at my wife, Lynette. She said, you know, Mom, sometimes Jesus, he sits next to me and he pats me on my back really softly. And she said, he's doing that right now. <laughs> I just love that. I love that. The questions that she asks, the things that she says. And we're, we're trying to tell just two main things. We tell her, God is everywhere and he loves everyone. Just two simple truths. She has a hard time understanding that when, you know, how was God here in my room and there? But she's beginning to wrestle with that. But it's great to see her just going after faith, going after God in a really sweet and sincere way. I mean, God even tells us, right, to have faith like a, like a child. So there's something really precious about that. Um, she loves singing. Singing is something that she loves to do. Uh, one of her favorite songs at the moment is, Our God is an Awesome God. It's a great song, right? Yeah. Tremendous song. I think she learned it in preschool. So we recently took a trip up to Lake Arrowhead. And she was asking if we could sing this song. So all the way from about Temecula to Costa Mesa, which is about an hour, she demanded that we sing Our God is an Awesome God together. And we were going through the different versions that were online and listening to some of the crazy versions. And she, we had a really good time with that. One of, her favorite, one of her favorite songs for sure. Another one of her songs that she came home singing, which I learned in this church, which is amazing. She came home singing this from preschool. She actually goes to the preschool at the church that we work at. So it's pretty cool. She's on the first floor of preschool. My wife works on the second floor. I'm on the third floor. So we're all together. That's kind of fun. Um, so we picked her up one day. And if you know the song, help me finish it, all right? She said, Daddy, I have a new song. I said, all right, well, let's hear it. Let's, let's hear how it goes. And she said, I am a C. I am a C-H. 
I am a C-H-R-A-S-T-I-A-N. Yeehaw! And I were L-I-V-E. And I can't spell the rest of it. I had, wasn't able to spell it then, and I can't spell it right now. <clears throat> but the song, I am a Christian, and I have Christ in my heart, and I will live eternally. What a great picture. What a great proclamation for our, for our little daughter to make. But I'll tell you, it also it gave me a little bit of a pause. And she began singing that song and just thinking about this word Christian. And actually, in our, we were in a series at Mariners titled Christian. And when we say Christian, we go like this, Christian? Kind of like do our shoulder like that. Because the term Christian, although it's a great term, it also means something different to, to, to a lot of us, doesn't it? Different expectations, different cultural understandings. We've had a different experiences of, experiences of what it means to be a Christian, many of us, by the way that we've grown up. I mean, if we were just to take a survey in this room or maybe go out to lunch afterwards and ask the, the simple question, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? If we asked 10 people, we probably would get 10 different definitions. Within the church, when we ask that question, we're maybe trying to figure out, well, what kind of brand of Christian? Are you the brand of Christian that maybe worships with the hands behind the back? Maybe are you one of these guys? Are you one of the washing machine Christians that does one of these? Hallelujah! Look at Jesus! <laughs> That's what we are, right? Come on now. I did that in Orange County. It didn't go off very well. They're like, what? Washing machine Christian, what are you talking about? What does that mean? But often we want to know, what kind of brand of Christianity are you? Like, what, what radio station do you listen to? What, what books are you reading? Who's your favorite pastor, Pastor Mark Thomas? Um, <laughs> what political affiliation are you associated with? Uh-oh. Right? Or sometimes we think to be a Christian, it's all about the way that you believe. Do you believe the right things? Do you believe like me? Do we have the similar doctrine? Or maybe we think it's about how we behave. Are you behaving the right way? Are you living as, as I would say a Christian is supposed to live? Within the church, we have various definitions of what it means to be a Christian. And we ask that question outside of the church, even broader scope of definition of what it means to be a Christian. I don't know if you've ever had that experience when you're sitting down at Supercuts and you're getting ready to get your hair cut. I've got it there a couple times and it did not turn out too super, so. I don't know where that name comes from. They decided to put this little line in my hair. I don't know where that came from, but that's how we do it in SoCal, I guess. I don't know. But the conversation goes, and eventually they, you know, they ask what you do, and I say, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, wow, so, so you're a Christian. And I want to say, yes, I am, but let me tell you all about it. But also I'm a little hesitant because I know often when I'm talking about Christian, they're hearing something very different than what I mean by a Christian. I mean, some of the words that they might associate with what does it mean to be a Christian. Well, let's be honest. A Christian is somebody who's judgmental. It, come on. You guys like that? All right. Come on. Come on. I love the talk back, man. That's what I'm talking about. Um, maybe somebody who's judgmental. Maybe somebody who's, who's a hypocrite. I'm sure there's none of us up in this house today that are like that. I know I'm not. <laughs> or maybe somebody who's just a moralist, subscribing to their understanding and version of what it means to be a moral person. Somebody maybe who's even a homophobic. That's what it means to be a Christian. All these dangerous definitions. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because the reality is, is the term Christian is not really clearly defined in the Scriptures. So it's left open to our cultural understanding and interpretation. Our experience. 
how we interacted with people. That, that's what it means to be a Christian by our experiences, by our cultural definitions. And it's a troubling thing to think about how we got to that point where something so beautiful can mean so many different things to so many different people. And some of these things are great and fantastic. Other of these things are dangerous and they're hurtful and they conjure up emotions of pain. So how did we get here? Well, as I said, the reality is the term Christian, not clearly defined in Scripture. In fact, it only appears, and I counted so you don't have to do this later, it only appears three times throughout the Gospels. Only three times do we see the word Christian appear throughout the Gospels. And when it does appear, it's often, it's often a, a term used by the outsiders to define, to define those who are inside Christianity. So we see it more as a label or a description and not really a definition. And in fact, it's often used as a derogatory term. There was this, uh, uh-huh, there was this, uh, I love it. Don't feel like I'm making, I, I love it, so let's just keep that going. Come on. We, my dad said we got till 1230. Only 30 minutes? The offering was a little long, so we'll go 1240. Is that right? No, we'll see how it goes. All right. He often says that he wants us back here, but I don't know if he really does because, it could, you know, what happened? Anyway. Um, <laughs> what were we talking about? A derogatory term. There is this new sect of these, these radical people, these Christ followers. Many of them were Jewish converts. So they thought maybe they were like this weird Jewish mystic set of Judaism. You know, they heard about these people doing these strange things. They thought maybe they were cannibals because they heard that they consumed the flesh and the blood of this person called Jesus. So there was this interesting thing. Well, who are these Christians and what are they? So it was really a derogatory term. They heard that they were trying to become like Christ. So they started saying they're, they're like little Christ. These people like little Christ, so they called them Christians, little Christ. If you were in Ephesus, uh, you would be a what? Ephesians, Ephesians right? Ephesians. Galatia. Galatians. Galatians. Corinth. Corinthians. Mars. Martian. A Martian just checking. <laughs> and when we say those things, they're descriptive terms, but they're not definitions. And we have these kind of things today. We have terms that we use to describe people that maybe aren't so... Great, and just use as, as descriptions. I mean, what do we call people who are really into Star Trek? We call them Trekkies, right? What about uh, people that are really into the Grateful Dead? What do we call those guys? Do we have any recovering deadheads in the house? Maybe? <laughs> Testify! Wow. Uh, Justin Bieber, do you know what we call Justin Bieber aficionados? Is any, what is it? Believe, believers? Believers. Are you a believer? Okay, yeah, I mean, not so much either. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Or other kind of labels, right? Um, Uncle, Uncle Ricky, he's from the South, and what do we usually call people from the South? Red, rednecks, that's not very nice. <laughs> that's not, or preps, right? Preppy people, people that put their things up and do all that. Or a skater, or, or a hipster. Does anybody really know what a hipster means? I think it's somebody who just thinks it's cool to wear clothes that they bought at the thrift store and get oversized glasses and make sure they have an owl on their shirt somewhere and shop at Urban Outfitters. I don't know what that means. <clears throat> but I'd love to show you just the first time that this word Christian appears is in Acts 11. If you have your Bible, Acts 11, starting at verse 21. We're going to be jumping around a little bit at some different texts. We usually like to maybe anchor in one, but we'll be around a little bit in and around today. And we're looking, um, I have the NIV version, so I hope that's all right. It'll be a little bit different, but it's still the Word of God, right? 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the context of this in Acts 11. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's told his disciples to go and make disciples in Judea, Samaria, and the other, and the other ends of the earth. To go and proclaim the salvation of Jesus Christ. Well, actually, they haven't quite done that yet. They've been a little comfortable where they are in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has come. They've proclaimed the message of, of salvation and redemption. Many are coming to the faith. It's a great thing. But they got a little comfortable, and they didn't quite go, because the command was always to go, not to stay. Wait for the Holy Spirit, and then go. Holy Spirit came. They got a little comfortable, and they stayed. Something happened. Stephen was out preaching, and he became the first martyr of the Christian faith. And this caused them to go, which I find is interesting because they, live, they didn't live out the command until something negative happened and then they scattered. But God's will will always be accomplished. So here's what we have here. As, as they went, they began going to these Gentile cities, proclaiming the message of, of Jesus Christ. Um, and Barnabas is one where he goes to Antioch. And this is what happens in verse 21, the first time that we see the word Christian used in Scripture. Acts eleven twenty one. <laughs> The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch the believers were first called Christians. So again, a term used to describe, not to define. A term used as a descriptive label even by the outside to describe the insiders. And again, it's a term that is loose. It's a term that, because it's not scripturally defined, unfortunately has been culturally defined. Again, in beautiful ways, but also in harmful ways. So you might think, well, kid, then we're off the hook. If it's not totally defined, then what I'm doing is, is okay. I can be my version of what I think a Christian is supposed to be, and, and that's okay because this is my expression of that. Well, the reality is, is no, we're, we're not off the hook. While Christianity may not be clearly defined, there is a term that is clearly defined. There is a term that is actually a far more dangerous term. A term of serious implications. And while Christian was only used three times, this term we find used 252 times throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts. And that term, does anybody care to take a guess at it? Is... A disciple. You were here earlier, so that's not fair. A disciple. Jesus uses this term of his followers. He calls us his disciples. You don't have to turn there, but just a few times in Acts where we see this term used. In Acts 6-7, So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In Acts 9-36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. And she decided to call herself Tabitha. That's, that's a good choice, I would say. <laughs> if your name is Dorcas, I'm sorry. We'll be prayer ministry afterwards for you and for me. Um, she was always doing good and helping the poor. In Acts 14.21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of of disciples. And you might be like me, sometimes a little cynical and skeptical, and say, well, those are just somatics. Potato, potato. Disciple, Christian. It's, you know, two sides of the same coin. It really means the same thing. Well, actually, it doesn't. To be a disciple means to be really three main things. It's someone who says that they are a learner. 
It's someone who's an apprentice, someone who's a follower, or even a disciplined adherent to the ways of their master. A disciple is someone who looks to a master and says, you have a way that I know nothing about, that I want to learn from you what it means to grow in that way. A disciple is someone who looks to the master and no matter what the question is, their answer is yes. A A disciple is one who's on a lifelong journey to learn, a lifelong journey to follow the master. We have a friend who uh, had a friend who was an art student in Europe. Was at a really prestigious school, and one of the arts that was being taught there was uh, sculpting. That's the thing where you do it with your hands, right? And clay making. Is that the thing from Ghost, that movie with the clay making thing? Is that what it is? I don't know. <coughs> one of those things. And learning some different mediums of, of art. Really prestigious school. Some of the people had been there for years. Some of them were just there, just kind of getting started. And so this guy went on a tour and. And he asked the, the teacher, the master, he said, Hey, I noticed that some of these people have been here for a long time and their work looks really good. Are they ever going to be you know, kind of released? Or it's, it's a different school. You don't go for four years and then you're done. And, and he asked, Well, how do you know when that person is done and ready and, and have learned? Then he said something which I think is really poignant. And it, it, it's on for us. He said, The way that I can tell is when they're ready is when their work is indistinguishable from the work of the master. Wow. When there's no separation between their art and what they're producing, between what has been produced. When you look at their art and say, yes, that points to something. That looks just like the master's art. When there's no difference between our lives and our expressions and that of Jesus. When people can look at us and say, yep, Jesus is all over that. I don't know what that is. I don't know how to describe it. It's love that looks different than I've ever seen it before. It has to be accredited to something else outside of that person. And that something else is the person of Jesus. How I long to be a person whose whose life resembles, reflects the, the master, the king, his love, his sacrifice. That people can look at me and say in such a way, not because of me that I could boast, but actually look and say, yes, that's Jesus. I would say often I get that wrong. I would say often people look at, at my life and say, maybe, maybe not so much. And I think for us as the church, the global church, that those on the outside, that's often what they see. Maybe that's not all right because they haven't invested themselves in community and they haven't been a part and, and seen what's happened. But sometimes there is that difference between what Jesus has called us to produce and be Versus what the world sees. And I wonder sometimes if that's because we haven't really taken this call of what it means to be a disciple. So we have to ask our question. It's a dangerous question. And it's a loaded question. And it's a hyper question. So it's, you don't take it all the way. But are we disciples or are we just Christians? Are we disciples or are we just Christians? And of course, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Christian's a great term. It's a lovely thing. We're not suggesting that we stop using that and change the name of the church to Heart of the Bay Disciples Center. No. HBCC comes off the tongue nice. It's great. I like that, actually. <laughs> but the reality is that discipleship is a costly thing. It's a costly thing. We'd love to look at Luke's Gospel, Luke 14. There's tons of verses that we can look at that speak of discipleship. And we chose the most difficult one of all because you guys are bright and good looking. You're 11 o'clock and you're all coffeeed up, right? 
<laughs> and you can handle it. Ain't that right, Michelle? Amen. All right, Luke 14, starting at verse 25. <laughs> it says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And just to pause there, often we see this with Jesus, large crowds traveling, flocking with him and towards him, coming with him. Throughout his ministry, he spent a lot of time going back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem, back and forth between his hometown and back and forth from all these places that he was ministering. And as his ministry, ministry began to grow, uh, word got out about him. So anytime he traveled, more and more people would come with him. And I don't know about you, but when I have a large crowd, kind of like I do today, I want to make sure that people like me. So my mom ironed my shirt last night. Yep. Thank you. I got a fresh haircut. I shaved. I even showered. (laughs) Because in front of large crowds, you want to, you know, have people on your side and you want them to be with you and all that stuff. Let's look at what Jesus said to these large crowds. Interesting. (laughs) Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry the cross cannot be my disciple. And everybody said, really? Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if that's what they said. Or if they said, wait, when are you going to do the healing stuff? When are we going to get the bread and the fish and... And all that. Like, I thought this was going to be all good. I thought we were like in the, we were in the club, you know, we know the handshake, we know the thing. And Jesus says, wait, there's a cost to following me. Consider this. And then he goes on to illustrate it in ways that they would have understood. Suppose that one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying that this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation with others that are still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Oh my goodness. I don't know if that hits you. It hits me. Hate father and mother, my wife, my children. Are you kidding? And obviously Jesus is using extreme language. He's, he's using language that would kind of smack them across the face as it did me. Oh, I'm really sunburnt. That hurt. Um, to, make, to make a point. And what is his point? His point is there can be no greater person in your life besides me. That number one is your relationship with me. That you trust in me alone. That I am the one you look to for peace, refuge, and strength. That I am the one that you get your instructions from. And yes, there's other assets of life that you will get. And and my love and grace will abound in all those things. And you steward those things well. But first thing first, your relationship with me is what matters. Consider and count the cost. And we do this in the natural. We do it almost with everything that we buy, it seems, right? When you buy a car, I love the Carfax commercials. Because you have these pictures of people buying cars and driving off the lot. And then the whole thing falls apart. And then a little annoying guy says, hey, should have got the Carfax, right? (laughs) Consider that before you enter into that. You know, I I play guitar and I buy gear all the time. And I make sure that I do the research and I get the right thing. and, And that I can really invest in it. 
We consider the cost in a lot of ways in the natural realm. In the same realm, when it comes to our life, our livelihood, our spiritual relationship with the Father, consider the cost. Consider the cost. Because the reality is, is many would follow Him. Many followers would, would follow Him, but not all of them would become disciples. Many would even believe the right thing. Many would even behave the right way. But they wouldn't follow Him. Jesus spent the majority of His ministry talking to Pharisees. You talk about those who behaved the right way. They had the highest standard of the law. And what did He constantly push back to them? It's not enough. It's not enough. I'm after something greater than just the way that you behave and that you believe. I'm after your allegiance, your heart. Will you follow me with all that you are? Not for the sake of others that you can be seen, but for the sake of the relationship that I'm calling you into. Jesus had a way with crowds. If you want to do a fun study sometime in the gospel, look at all the interactions that he has with crowds. And he does two things. We see Jesus as somebody who's invitational. You know, come to me all who are weary. And he gathers a large crowd. But we also see him doing something often that's provocative or challenging. Great is the cost. Come to me, everyone. This is for everyone. My love, my life, my liberty, it's for everyone. But also, there is a cost. Consider the cost. Love to just look at my favorite crowd interaction of all time. In Matthew's gospel, if you have it, let's turn to Matthew 8. And I'm going to have a sip of some Kirkland drinking water. (laughs) Matthew 8, it's such a great passage. It's only four verses. But what I love about it is what happens in it, but also what happened before it. You might know it, it follows the Sermon on the Mount, right? right. One of, I mean, Jesus' greatest message of all time. The, probably the greatest message that we will ever, ever have recorded. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, of what it means to follow him. He's doing some miraculous things. Large crowds are following him. So he has here this large crowd that has literally been listening to him and following up a mountainside, Sermon on the Mount, as he's preaching. So it's like as he keeps preaching, they just keep on going up, Right? Every good word, blessed are, are those who mourn because they will be comforted. All these amazing things. And look what happens in Matthew 8. As I get it right there. There we go. When Jesus came down the mountainside, Sermon on the Mount, coming down the mountainside, large crowds followed him. There's that large crowds again. And then a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you do not tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift of Moses uh, commanded as a testimony to them. There's some things in here that should be like, Huh? Interesting. Remember, large crowds. What happens next? A man with leprosy comes out. He appears in front of Jesus and this crowd. And we know a couple of things about people with with, with leprosy. It was a physical ailment, really a horrible physical ailment that would attack the skin and just fester and boils. And it wasn't very pleasant. It would smell, all, all that kind of thing. So there's the physical connotation of what it means to be a leper. There's also the social and the spiritual implications. Because if you're a leper, 
actually, you can't go to temple. You can't worship. You're an outcast. If you had a family, you can't be with your family anymore. If you had a job, sorry, that's taken from you. And you know what they did with many of these lepers? They actually shipped them to islands. <laughs> and they put them out on islands or they put them into prison, in prisons to stay away from them because they believed that they, they had a demon and they believed that it, that demon could actually rub off and get on you. Yeah. If you got too close to a leper, you would become unclean. And if you're unclean, you can't worship, you can't work, you can't be with your family. So this man comes out, approaches Jesus. Jesus touches the man, the Messiah, making himself in the eyes of other, others unclean. He says, I am willing, be clean. And he does it a beautiful thing. He heals the man physically, but he also restores him socially and spiritually. He says, now go to the temple, show yourself, reinstate yourself. So this man was not only healed, but hey, he could return to his family again. He could be a father again. He could be a husband again. He could work again. He could go to the temple and worship again. Because Jesus, maybe you already know this, is in the business of complete and full restoration. That's what our Jesus does. He heals. He restores. He brings holistic healing to every asset of our life. That's what our Savior does. That's what he did for this man. But there's something interesting that he says to this man. See to it that you don't tell anyone. Uh. Remember the large crowds? We think swarms of probably upwards of 500 to 900 people, if not more. So what does that imply to us? They ain't there no more. These large crowds went somewhere. Interesting thing about a leper. Remember, you can't be touched by a leper. So if a leper was in a town square out in public, you know what they would actually have to do? They would have to declare, that's right, declare their presence vocally, unclean, unclean. And as they did, what happens here is we see these crowds scatter. They scatter. Why? Because of fear. Because of everything that they just heard, as incredible as it was on the Sermon on the Mount, they weren't willing to follow Jesus all the way down and apply to the very first person that they encountered. See, because it's one thing to hear a word and it's one thing to be blessed by a word. It's quite another thing to live it out and follow Jesus into places that are dark, dangerous, broken, and hurting. And guess what? That's exactly where the word needs to go. That's exactly where he's calling you to bring the word. But are we willing Will we risk? Will we go into the dark places as Jesus goes to be light? Or do we scatter like these crowds did because of fear for us being unclean, because of fear for our safety, because of fear of what others may think? See, a disciple doesn't care what others think. That's right. A disciple follows. Amen. A disciple obeys. A disciple lives out what he has been given. But unfortunately, these people missed it. They missed the redemptive work of their Savior before their eyes. And the reality is, is often we miss it. Because there is a cost. There is a cost to following. But, praise the Lord Almighty on heaven, there is also a tremendous reward for following. How many of you guys have experienced that reward in your life? There is a reward for following. There's a hope that we have that begins now that carries with us throughout eternity. There's a joy in grieving that we can have and experience because of the reality of our Savior. That we don't mourn as others mourn because we have a hope that is lasting. 
There's an inheritance of the riches, uh, riches of the fullness of Jesus Christ that we can participate in in the here and now. There's the power of the Holy Spirit that we've been given. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive where? In us. What a great reward. Mark the salvation. Co-workers with Him with the redemptive work that He's doing in the earth here and now. That's what He calls us to do. I love this passage in Matthew 13, 44. It speaks of just the, the reward that we experience. It likens the kingdom of heaven, it says in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven, it is like a treasure which is hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had and he bought the field. Because what he had in Jesus was worth more than anything else he could experience and obtain on earth. Amen. A great reward. Hope, eternity, power of the Holy Spirit, partnering with his work. That's the hope, that's the reward that we have when we follow when we obey, when we go. Amen. Our daughter loves Disneyland. Surprise, surprise, as most <laughs> four-year-olds do. We happen to live just about 15 minutes from the park, so there's a lot of nights where we just decide to go after work. I think we might go today. We'll see how it goes and see how awake I am once I get off the plane. Um, and our little girl, she's a thrill seeker. She loves the big roller coasters. Ever since she was... One and a half, two years old. She's always wanted to go on the big ones. And she has the luxury of being tall. Surprise, surprise. She is, she is quite tall. Head and shoulders above all the other kids in her class, at the park, everywhere we go. So she can go on these rides probably before she's supposed to. And because we're good parents and we want her to experience things, we let her go for it. So, And she's not afraid, which is incredible. How many of you guys have been on Splash Mountain before? <laughs> right? That's the ride at Disneyland that has that terrifying drop. You know, and you could hear the screams when you're eating your popcorn. Ah! <laughs> two and a half, two and a half. She wanted to go on that ride. Daddy, I want that. I want to do that ride. Okay, let's go for it. She was small enough at the time where we could place her in front of us and we could hold her. And, and she went on it and she loved it. And she's gone on it several times since then. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were, or a couple of months ago, we were back at the park. And we hadn't been on the ride for a while. And sometimes she forgets things, right? Just kids, memory, whatever. Um, but she saw the ride and she said, Daddy, I want to go on that ride again. I want to go on that ride again. Are you sure? Okay. We we're a little nervous this time because now she's so tall that we couldn't put her in our lap. She had to sit in her own seat. She's like, all right, we'll see what happens. And Lindy was actually at work, so it was just me and Olivia. So we're, we're in line and we're doing the thing and she's really excited. And, and as we get closer and closer to the front, the screams get a little bit louder. Ah! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> And I can, I'm looking at her and I can tell she's like, oh, I don't remember that part, you know. <laughs> but she's brave and I'm telling her it's going to be okay. And, and so, we, so we go for it. So we get to the front of the line. And I love what happened is um, the guy that was going to sit in the front, he got scared or something, I don't know, had left. So we got the front row seat. And she said, yeah, I want to do that one, you know. Like not like the one behind, but the very front. So, all right, you go for it. So she sits in the very front. We're going along the ride. We're singing zippity doo dah and having a good old time. And, and she's just loving it. And then we start going up the incline, right? And it gets dark and the storm comes and everything. And she looks back at me and she smiles because <laughs> she's excited for... I don't think she still remembers what's going to happen, but she smiles like, yeah, let's do this. Let's go for this. And then what happened next is I think we actually have a picture of, uh, of what happened next. Yeah. <laughs> You can see I'm screaming on the verge of tears. 
The guy in the Trailblazers jersey has a funny smile. I don't know what's going on there. And then uh, Olivia's got her hands just raised with the biggest smile she could possibly have. I love that. I love that as a parent, it makes me proud. But I love that it also, it says something to us about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It says something to us. That it's great to be on the adventure, the the journey of hearing His words and, and climbing up. But there is a point where we reach this pinnacle where He's saying, it's time to jump off. Yeah. <laughs> like, like really, it's time to actually go and love that person. Yeah. Amen. It's time to go and be with those, your family maybe even. I'm calling you to some dangerous and risky things. And will you trust me enough that you will follow me down into where that darkness is so that light can be shown through you yeah. as I am with yeah. you? And I love that. that she, there she is. And she's having such a good time. And there's that picture of she's having that good time because she's secure in the arms of her father. Amen. Because she's trusting in the love of her father. Amen. That as you go, I have you. Amen. That as I called you to those places, I am with you. Yeah. I don't push you off. I don't leave you. I don't abandon you. I don't forsake you. I'm calling you to this journey and I am in it with you. Yeah. Yeah. That I am for you. And I love just the picture of confidence that that has. That we can have that in our Father. That as He calls us, as He compels us, that who He calls, He equips. And that His love is with us. Romans 8.19 Romans 8.19 For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation is waiting. Your workplace is waiting. Your family is waiting. Your friends are waiting. The person at the BART station is waiting. The person that you pass on your way to work every week who's on the corner with that little sign is waiting. Waiting for what? For the sons of God to be revealed. And what reveals the sons of God? What is the marker of discipleship? Jesus says this, they will know you are my disciples by the way you have love for one another. That's it. (laughs) There's laws to keep. There's ways to live our life. Absolutely, there's a moral standard. There's disciplines that he calls us to. But ultimately, what is he looking for? The way you love one another. Will you follow? Will you go when it's scary? Secure in your Father's arms to bring love to the world around you. Would love to read this passage here in Romans 8. You don't have to turn there because this isn't a message translation. But this invite, this is really paints a picture of the, the journey that our Father is calling us to. No matter what stage of life you're in, this is what He's calling us to in Romans 8, 15. This resurrection life you receive from God, it's not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurous, expectant, Greeting God with childlike faith that says, What's next, Papa? What's next, Papa? What adventure? What are you calling me to? What is that new thing? God's Spirit touches our spirit, confirms who we really are, and we know who He is, and we know who we are, Father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. There's that reward. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with Him, then we will certainly go through the good times with Him. 
Amen. That's my call today, guys. Good times ahead. Stay. Follow. He has you. He loves you. He's calling some of you, I believe, even now in this moment. You know what that is, that risky thing, that relationship, that new job, whatever it is. He's with you. Go with the assurance of God's love that he is with you. Amen.